sorry, market average is 3.9. You can uh, head back to your office and revise that paperwork for me. And we'll, we'll talk again when you're north of 5%. I mean, I think the labor market is such right now. Workers have so much leverage. You just say, nah, just send me the spreadsheet. I'll add the numbers. Like, I <laughs>
and I couldn't figure out what was going on. So now that I know the secret, I feel really, I'm really excited about the news. You're in the loop. You're in the loop. And you can say, is it related? Is it unrelated? You never know with markets. But regardless, Peloton comes out with a statement about the episode. So I, I think this says more about Peloton than anything else in the state of their, I mean, their stock's down like 70% this year. But they had to come out to be like, yeah. <laughs> I th the spokesperson said something on the lines of, I bet you that Mr. Big, the character, riding this Peloton actually extended his life. He probably would have had. No. Yes. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, anyway. Anyway. Uh, thank you for that listener mail from my friend about that episode. Yeah. 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 We appreciate the listener mail mm -hmm. on that. Speaking of losses, the Financial Times did awesome charts on uh, Kathy Wood's holdings this week Ooh, and yep. some of the stuff that she's held down. We talked to, we talked about Kathy way too much, and so I won't bore you with this, but one of her holdings is called Proton Labs, and it's down almost 80%. And if I read this right, if I understood this right, I just thought this was an interesting like factoid. What That's a really small company, and what happened when her fund had net inflows is there was like crazy demand to keep up their position in that company as the inflows came into her fund. And now that she's experienced significantly outflows, like she's in a way somewhat responsible for collapsing stock prices for these smaller companies because she made up such a large portion of their holdings. I just thought that was like a interesting note from the week that I had thought about before, but I hadn't thought thought about deeply, at least recently. So it's crazy the push and pull of kind of, we say the hyenas in the market, right? But yeah. when that was the hot thing, it totally changed the fortunes of one company for a short time uh, probably positively, and now it's probably overdoing the negative prospects of yeah. that company simply because of the Kathy Wood effect. It makes me think about, it was a few weeks back, we talked about the research paper that came out that was saying, do inflows and outflows influence market prices? Yeah, that's interesting, especially with one specific market manager. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating stuff, just stuff you don't think about, or I don't think yeah. about on a daily basis. All right, so I want to talk about a great podcast we got to this week with Philip Rosedale and F Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley is definitely one of the favorites on the show, and uh, this is the Patrick O'Shaughnessy pod. So, uh, one of the, some really quality content comes out of there. I know I've mentioned it in the past. This was basically about Philip and Bill's adventure with uh, Second Life and Dougal's. I know you're very familiar, so I'll, I'll let you jump in shortly. But um, Philip founded second life Diggles, I'll, I'll lean on you for the facts i want to say 20 years ago really got hot in 99 ish is that right i was after that um so it was founded if i remember correctly it was founded in 2003 and yeah. the 2006 to like 2008 2009 era was really when when it was hot the hotness thank you um so yeah the 99 reference i made actually as i remember it that's when Philip felt like the competing power was getting to the point where he could take this idea he had and turn it into something. And it, I think his idea was largely about he loved Legos growing up, and he thought it'd be really cool if a bunch of people in real time could collaborate on like Lego sets that all link together, right? Super cool idea and really cutting edge, I think, in the early 2000s. And there's a reason that this got popular. That a few factoids that I'll throw out that I just thought was super interesting. For those who don't know, Second Life is like 
the first iteration of what people are calling the metaverse today. And it's also probably an early iteration of like the Minecrafts that are incredibly popular right now. I think Minecraft is the first or second most popular video game in the world. The Roblox, which is a public company that has all sorts of buzz and has some really cool features. Uh, Second Life did this first. And so Patrick's view was, I'm going to talk to Philip and Bill about their adventures 15 years ago and see what's applicable to Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse today. I just think it's a fascinating concept. If you're hearing that buzzword out, I'd encourage you uh, to dig into this because there were so many great learnings. So let me pause before I go down several more rabbit hole stoogles and uh, let you jump in on the Second Life experience. Sure thing. And uh, I so I left Linden Lab, which is the company that makes Second Life. I left there about a decade ago. Um, so anything that's happened there over the past 10 years, I don't know anything about. But the technology behind this is incredible. I, I don't think I'll I'll experience technology again in my career that was comparable to what was created there. To give you a sense early on, so, uh, so um, Philip was at a company called Real Networks before he came to Second Life. And Real Networks was, uh, it was a media player online. And so that's where when you bring up like seeing bandwidth being capable, computing power yeah. being capable of doing this, like he was in the heart of, uh, of, of what bandwidth computer power looked like. But anyway, early on in, in uh, Second Life, they created this thing called the rig. So this is before my time at the very beginning, created this thing called the rig, which was a chair that you'd sit on and it would measure like you'd get all hooked up and it would measure like your your movement your body movement so you can move your avatar like through this chair right wow yeah i mean it's phenomenal then drop that end up going to a mouse and a keyboard right but because yeah. it's much more practical um, but anyway it was just showing you how far ahead uh the thought process and the like technological push was at this organization um but quite incredible uh, and Happy to, to talk a little bit more as you start to get into the podcast. I'd love to hear what was interesting to you. Uh, and then I can feed in any experience I had there if applicable. Yeah, well, so much. And I'm glad we have a, a expert with some experience at this actual company that we can lean on today in Dougal's. But just really fascinating stuff. So they talked about total addressable market a little bit, right? He said initially they were kind of excited with, I'll probably articulate this the wrong way, but like, the graphics and they wanted it to be somewhat lifelike and stuff. And w then when they compare and contrast to like the Minecrafts and the Roblox today that have taken off in a way that maybe Second Life never uh, got to that in terms of number of daily active users and sort of things, they both said one of the things that Minecraft did right is make the learning curve to get immersed in that world as simple as possible. And you see that with five-year-olds and seven-year-olds jumping into Minecraft head over heels. I think Second Life, and I'd be interested for your take on this, initially it was like, this is a more adult-like thing. And they just realized that the niche for adults that one, either have the free time or have the interest or have the desire to escape to this other world is a small percentage of, of all adults. I mean, people are out raising kids and going to soccer games and doing balancing their work stuff, right? So that was a really interesting insight that they said if they did it all over again, they'd make it as simple as possible and they'd probably start, you start with kids as your core market and maybe grow from there. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this before on the pod around, around kids because to give you um, some sense for uh, when I was there, 
I did a lot of leading on strategy, like corporate strategy for them, a bunch of other stuff. But one of the things that I kept tracking was the growth of virtual worlds around kids. And so yeah. I'd send these emails to like um, Philip, our CFO at the time, right? Um, uh, and then we had a CEO and a CEO at one point, Mark Kingdon, a uh, great guy, and say like, we got to do this thing, right? And we had, we actually had two, there were two separate second lives. There was the adult second life and then there was a kid's one, but the kid's one was effectively neglected. Okay. We didn't, we didn't do as much there. It was, it was like a tiny part of things. And I was saying like this, this feels like it's a real thing. And then one day, uh, Philip was like, he called me in and I'd made this deck that I'd put in a drawer. I used to make decks and put them in drawers. It was like a thing I did when I, early in my career, do do that if you want young, young kids. Anyway, so I pulled out this deck and like showed what could the growth of kids be like? And Philip was like, go do this. And so we had this project that was like about six or seven uh, months long where we looked into how can we have kids be in the same world as the adults because mm -hmm. them being separate, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And so I was like, how do we redo our marketplace? And so we, we did this whole thing and kids grew from like 1% to 20% of our audience nearly overnight. Like it became a pretty big thing, but it, it wasn't built for kids. I think to the point of what he brought this up in the, the pod is that we didn't have the simplicity, right? That like kids could really, get into so we ended up making it it was 16 plus um so it wasn't like yeah. kids kids it was 16 plus so that we ended up making it but yeah but i fully as he was talking there he and bill were talking about that it like took me back like fully uh into those moments when we were discussing but trip down memory lane no it's so fun i, I really enjoyed this one because i mean i think bill Gurley is like the most rational venture capitalist that i'm aware of i'm always taken by like his expertise but his groundedness and you know, he just comes across as trustworthy to me. And that's not always the case with those types of folks. I really enjoyed this. But to me, this, the overarching thing without going down too many rabbit holes was kind of like, they are directly saying that Zuckerberg's vision for the metaverse is misguided. I don't know. What's the right word, Dougal? like, they don't appear to be excited about his ideas for how the metaverse will work about his thoughts of the total addressable market, about his ideas about profitability. Like to me, the two most knowledgeable people in the world on the subject, basically, I mean, they'd be in the a handful of 10 most knowledgeable people on the metaverse are going, yeah. no, Zuckerberg's approach doesn't make any sense. And that's how I felt from the start. Like uh, that's the, the worst part of the Facebook investment right now from an equity perspective is the fact that they want to spend however many billions on the metaverse and i just think it's a dead end um anyway what what were your takes on that compare and contrast of their learnings to zuckerberg's approach and maybe not just zuckerberg I mean, there's a lot of people talking about the metaverse right now yeah but but in general yeah so going back to your point around bill Gurley, rational he is and also pushes the envelope like rational and pushes the envelope philip is not rational like which i think makes like a really interesting pairing. And what I mean by that is like back in early 2000s, he's thinking about rigging people to chairs, right? Like it's like a, he's yeah. living in a whole different universe. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, like pairing as far as the podcast goes to your point. I mean, it's a creator mindset. It's awesome. Exactly. Like you need those type of people. Yeah, exactly. Part of what they brought up in the pod and, uh, and it's true is that like they did this, right? Like they, the, the, what, when I say did this, I mean, what Zuckerberg's talking about around, I think exactly what one of uh, Bill Gurley, I'll get the quote a little bit wrong, but in the spot, he said, 
He's like, no one wants to have a board meeting in the metaverse. Like we had board meetings in, in the metaverse, right? Yeah. And and then there was a and, and the this, board members said we're not going back to that. We don't, that yeah. was not a good experience for us. You know, like we've been there, done that. Exactly, because it's it's a it's a useless use of the technology, basically, because you you log in, you get in your avatar, and you go sit in a chair, and then it's just audio, right? Like that that isn't a then it just becomes yeah. a conference call, and so that's not the use for it. There are other elements that you can use for business and education, which uh, Philip also talked about around building out three-dimensional representations of things in the real life and you can experience them together. Like that is, that's a use for it. But like mm -hmm. a, if, if Mark Zuckerberg or at all, like ends up going down the same path effectively that Second Life with the enterprise went down, then you're not using the learning that other folks have had. So if you just kind of go in there and you hang out with, with other people from your company, like that's not, that's not gonna be it at all. But there, there's a there there, but you just got, you got to get it right. And if people have already gone down that path, I hope Zuckerberg's trying to meet with Philip and Bill and Mitch Kapoor, who is the earliest investor yeah. there and on the board, like learn, learn from the past. And there's, there's stuff to do. I just like, if you're at all fascinated, it's the best thing. I feel like I've consumed five different podcasts that somehow talk about the metaverse. And this was by far the most rational, uh, most meaty. There's so many good learnings and and appropriate facts in there like second life is still around i think the user base is about what it was sometime in the late 2000s doogles and yeah. there's still i forget the numbers but i think billions of dollars being exchanged in uh that marketplace um they talked about creating the marketplace and that was just fascinating to me i mean they basically could have had crypto long before crypto now it wouldn't have been decentralized on a block blockchain but they made a decision early on about if it was going to be pegged to the dollar or if there was going to be a fixed amount of the fixed supply of the currency which could have completely changed the outcome of that game because people could have started buying linden dollars as the user base grew they would have increased in values relative to the dollar which could have brought more users to the space there's just a lot of fascinating decisions that were made i really enjoyed the pod and so i'd recommend it um for Agreed. sure Definitely, if you're into the metaverse, listen to this podcast. And I'd also, if you're going to read anything about Second Life, to pull a thread that you just said, read about the economy. I think that is the most fascinating part about Second Life is the economy, the Linden dollar as the, the quote unquote cryptocurrency. That's not what we called it there, but the digital currency. Yeah. The economy is so fascinating and the exchange that, that we had. So like, if you can find old articles or anything about that, I would, I would go and read, read about that. It's really fascinating. The original NFTs, really baby. Good. Yeah, really good stuff. Uh, I'll check that out. Uh, Gurley also mentioned to shift gears slightly, but you know I've been hung up on this for a while. He was talking, they were talking cryptocurrencies. They were talking about ETH and uh, Solana. And he said, you know, the fascinating thing about that space is if Solana ends up replacing ETH, um, then are we just in a race to the bottom? Because the reason Solana would replace ETH is because it has very similar functionality and it's quicker and less expensive. And so he goes, if that actually holds true, does that mean the entire market is worth a small fraction of what we think it's worth? Because it's effectively saying that, to use your phrase, there's a there there, but we're gonna race to the bottom in terms of costs and functionality. And so the value tied with that is a fraction of what we thought it might be when people are willing to spend all this additional money on security with like original ETH. I, I love 
Bill Gurley's thoughts. Um, and I've been thinking about that all week. Agreed. Fishbowl time. Hit me up. My favorite word, my word, Dougal's word of 2021, just to to uh, to try and challenge Merriam-Webster, is fragility, as everyone knows. And I want to hit on a couple. Uh, it's going to be my favorite word of 2022, because I think we're going to skate through this year without much fragility. But no, the fragility is still there, bro. But the, anyway, but two uh, two pieces of evidence of that. One is I want to read an answer on Quora about fragility, and then I want to give some other example. So uh, Quora is Quora is a, a question and answer website that I frequent. I enjoy it. Basically, someone puts out a question, and there are enough experts on the platform that you can get some pretty smart answers to questions that you have. So people ask things like, how do you actually go to space? And then you'll get like Neil deGrasse Tyson that'll like come on and like answer it. Yeah. So, and then you get people that ask questions like this. So question that was asked, why are people afraid of day trading? I have made 50 to 100% every month for the last seven years. Okay. Here's the answer. And this is like, it's just so beautiful. The answer is so beautiful. Here it is. Really? You made 50 to 100% monthly for seven years. Let's say you made 50% every month for seven years and started with $1,000. Let's also assume that you didn't withdraw money from the account. In seven years, there's 84 months. Then there's a quick little math problem they do. Your initial investment would be worth $600 million billion or more than the entire economy of the earth. For some reason, I don't believe you. The just the uh, the the typing out of six hundred million billion dollars like made the entire thing for me. I love this. There's a reason that there's more courses on day trading than day trading uh, billionaires because a lot of people will tell you that they make fifty percent a month for seven years, but no one actually is the Buffett, uh, Bezos, you know, level rich. It's it's not going to work out for you. I love and that too, and I can. If you take the uh, the question literally, I could believe it. In every month for the last seven years, this person has had a 50% return. That is not saying my portfolio returned in aggregate 50% to 100% every month. No, So anyway, anyway, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'll give, they had one 50% gainer and, and several 100% losers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the other thing I'll throw out, is DocuSign had an earnings report. And this to me is another fragility sign. So DocuSign on uh, earnings per share beat by 25%. They beat expectations by 25%. Revenue, not quite as much. They beat it by about 3%, right? So not, but anyway, green on both sides. DocuSign fell by 42% following this earnings report. And it's because of um, looking ahead, them giving guidance that wasn't quite there. But- that that to me also shows fragility, right? Because you, it's like it's so priced for perfection that you can't even be more than perfect, like to a certain extent. Nor can you say, you, nor can you have any negative feelings toward the future. But what I, what I'd add onto this is, and we've talked about versions of this before. This forty two percent drop took DocuSign stock price back to its summer of twenty twenty price. So, like it's meaningless effectively to, to give folks and I'm going to do a market aggregate because individual stocks it's it's too hard or you can cherry pick examples but just to give what like a real you said last time wait till these people experience like a 50% market drop 
because when the market drops, it goes back years, people. Like we're not talking like, like last February, right? We're talking years. So to give you some examples, when the S&P uh, 500 fell in the 2008, 2009, so at the, at the trough in 2009, it went back to 2002. It's 2002 price. When it hit the bottom in 2003, it went back to 1997 price, right? Mm -hmm. 1975, when it hit the trough, it went back to 1970. Like you, you get the idea there. This is when you get hit for real, you go back years. It's not, you can't remember the last time this price was hit is, is what we're talking about. Yep. And scene. Yep. Oh, you did so well. You stole my whole talk track there because I have picked up the lessons from Dougals and whatever. So DocuSign was at 400 something. It went to 200 something in a day. Like it looks, you look at the chart, it looks like it fell off a cliff. It literally did. And then you zoom out the chart a little bit and go, hey, when was the last time it was at that price? And it, in most cases, it's less than 24 months. Like it's just, it's bonkers out there. Absolute craziness. Fragility. Word of 2021 for Dougals. Word of 2022. Right. Estimated for, for Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to pull two things out of the fishbowl. First is for the listeners, and the second is for you, Dougals. So according to the Wall Street Journal, we all know we're reaching year end and uh, raises and bonuses should be on their way. According to the Wall Street Journal, there is uh, companies are setting aside an average of 3.9%. So I'm just, this is just for the listeners. When your boss comes into your office and says, hey, we love you. You did so great. We're giving you 3.2%. You're a top performer. You just go, no, sorry, market average is 3.9. You can uh, head back to your office and revise that paperwork for me and we'll We'll talk again when you're north of 5%, all right? I mean, I think the labor market is such right now. Workers have so much leverage. You just say, no, nah, just send me the spreadsheet. I'll add the numbers. Like, as, <laughs> you want to give me a raise? I'll just add, I'll just add the numbers. I'll just, yeah. Let me, let me do some editing on that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Take the security protections off. That 3.2 right, is, second is a, <laughs> It's a nice try, but that's not going to work for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you want to see my stack of job offers over here? Um, all right, second is hopefully a fun quiz. This is the best-selling model, make-in model of cars worldwide. And so I'm going to throw out some countries, and you're going to tell me what the best-selling uh, car is in that country. You ready? Make and model? Well, I mean, right. let's, let's see what you got. It. What's wrong with it? Uh, let's go China. <laughs> I mean, like this is... Uh, it's probably a make I, oh, no, it's probably a make I don't even know. I probably, I probably don't know the name of the, the make. Um, I can't. Can you start as a softball? V, like, v, VW uh, Lavidia? I, this is new oh. to me, but this is the most popular car, the most populous country. Like, I feel like I should know this. I won't quiz you with this one, but apparently in Japan, it's the Honda N box, like these really cool making models. I want to see. I want to know what. How am I supposed is. to to get this <laughs> this quiz? But was that the name of Jim Cramer's dog that you just said was the most popular car in China? <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> All right. So the U.S. Do you know the U.S. Toyota Camry? That's what I thought. Uh, no, they say the Ford F series, and it must be a way they like count up that the toyota camera is frequently called the best selling car in america yeah. but i think that car piece is the real so it's the whole here. series the whole f series okay well so what's funny is for canada they say 
F series and for the US they say the F one fifty. So oh. people like their trucks in the US. Mm. They like their um, gas guzzling. I feel like I feel like this quiz is falling on its face. I have a bunch more countries for you, but you're not really gonna know any of them. So um <laughs> It's true. About, I mean, that is, that, is a, that is an accurate assessment. How about uh, the United Kingdom? I'm going to say something European. It's probably not even in the UK. The Pigot, uh, <laughs> Navistar, Peugeot, uh, Ford Fiesta, and then last Close. one. Hopefully, this is easy. How about Sweden? The Volvo, something or other. S60. Oh, that's going to be the something. I have another quiz. Yeah, I have another quiz for you later that's probably going to be just as bad, but uh, apologies for that one. I told, What's the next thing you're fishing? What have I told you in the past? I know about a very few number of things. Very, very few. Public market investors. <laughs> so true. Startups. <laughs> and actually, what I forgot before is poker. Those are three things I know about. Three things I know about. Let me, you asking me about cars. A little bit about Second Life in the startup. Late, uh, yeah. Okay, there we go. What's in your fishbowl? All right. Uh, I'm going to bring up a good friend of ours from back in the day. My boy, Peter Lynch, ran the Magellan Fund for quite a while. I think from 77 to 90, something like that. Has very impressive track record, 29 plus percent per year. Very impressive, for especially running a fund that by the end was like a billion dollars. Like it's a lot of money. Um, so Peter Lynch, in the, over the past, uh, I think maybe month, but very recently, donated $20 million in art to his alma mater. I think it's Boston College, either Boston University or Boston College. I think it's Boston College, though. So donated $20 million. So he's been getting some, some press and whatnot. He's on a podcast talking about the art. And then what was asked to him in this podcast, so maybe he was thrown off a little bit, but was asked to him was, what do you think about the shift toward passive? So the boy's there to talk about art, right? But they threw this yeah. at him at the end, in like the last 90 seconds. What do you think about the move to passive? And he, to use your uh, Harry Potter phrase, he basically said it's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, and what, what he actually stated was he said that he believes that if people move to passive, they're going to be missing the boat, that he thinks it's a big mistake, and that his boys at Fidelity are going to keep cranking out market-beating returns like they've done for the past 10, 20, and 30 years. So th this, this is mm -hmm. what he throws out. The rest of what he said, like, doesn't even really make headlines. It's just like this last 60 seconds or 90 seconds or so that he has sure. on the pod. But then, but basically people are coming out and they're saying like, Peter Lynch is against passive investing. He and Warren Buffett have been friends in the past, but now they're probably going to be enemies, right? It's like, because Warren Buffett believes people shouldn't invest in passive investing. So anyway, I, I wanted to bring that up because we, we've chatted briefly like about the passive um, active thing. And it's been, you know, obviously passive versus active has been like a thing for a while. That people are talking about but want to get your take on that yeah so i'll reset we're bad at doing this but uh most of our investors are fairly sophisticated some people might not even know the ins and outs of that so basically the debate that's been going on for years in the finance community is simply about as people go to the the core investment strategy tends to be matching the market which means buy index funds where the funds are or the company picks are basically pre-established and adjust usually by the market cap weighting of those funds uh, versus picking individual stocks, right? And someone like Buffett, rightfully so, says the average investor should not mess around with picking individual stocks. It's a losing game. That's 100% true. Um, I think what 
Lynch and others are rightfully pointing out is if that pendulum swings too far to one direction, it gets to the point where equity valuations get disconnected from the true fundamentals of the company simply because they sit in a passive index that is popular, right? So a, f a company in the S&P, and it, this isn't exactly how it works, but you'll get the analogy, Dougals, right? Like the 500th company that ends up in all the S&P 500 funds, as opposed to the 501st company that misses that cutoff, probably have very similar fundamentals. But the inflows in all those passive funds could change the valuation, at least the market capitalization of that 500th company. I didn't hear this clip, but do you think my speculation of his thought process is right? Or was there more nuance to it than that? I think I think that that is uh, at least partially right. I think that's a, a significant part of it. I also think that he one is if you go back to what I said before, he beat the market over a 13 year period, 29 yeah. plus percent a year. Like that's his lived experience. Right. As one, he knows he also knows I'm going to state this as pure fact is that if you invest in a passive fund, you will not beat the market. Like that, that is, yep. it's guaranteed. And so I think that there's a part of it that um, you need to add some nuance on here, which I think you just did a, a fine job of doing, is saying that if you're an investor that wants to beat the market, then yes, you're definitely going to miss the boat if you don't do active. If you don't have a, a fund that is investing in individually uh, picked stocks, you're going you're gonna to miss the boat. And the vast, vast majority, like 95, 98, 99% of people should just invest in a passive fund because most of the active funds do lose. So I, I think that there is there is some nuance there, but I think for the most part, he's whatever, like 90 years old at this point. And he's, he's just like, he has his lived experience. And he's saying, I think that based on what I experienced back in the you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know, whatever, that active managers can do pretty well. And people, people yeah. should think about that. Well, he was great at it, still is. I mean, this almost ties to the direct indexing conversation, which right now, even for your, but your person that knows nothing about the stock market, they might be like, you know what? I think passive is the way for me. I'm perfectly fine with the S&P 500, but man, Tesla's valuation is garbage. And so is like, I'll just throw out two large names, Apple and Microsoft. If someone invests in a so-called passive fund that excludes Microsoft, Apple, and Tesla, their returns are going to be drastically different than those who do not. And I wonder like, if I was just having a beer with Peter Lynch, what he'd think about that approach, because I think he's generally understands that passive works for the large majority of people and is probably the right approach. Like, There's no beef between him and Buffett on that. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's definitely none. And uh, a little, in a little bit of uh, talk your book here, although I don't have the book here, but is the for research advice for me, I yeah. do recommend that people go and take a look at VTI. That's the passive fund I look at, which is a Vanguard total stock market yep. index in the US. There was a Wall Street Journal article that came out recently that's called the mutual fund that ate Wall Street based on an index that few people know about, which is about VTI um, and the mutual fund that's similar to that, and also CRISP, which we've discussed before, the Center for Research, Research and Security Prices. Yeah. So for the nerds out there that want to get a little bit of nerddom, 
but also think about passive indexing, go read that recent Wall Street Journal article. Oh, that's fun. I um, saw that headline and I didn't make it through the article, so I'm glad you're bringing it up. What's next in your fishbowl? All right. It's my second terrible quiz. This is according to Vegas Insider, and I can't think of a better authority Ooh, for this. Vegas is another. This... Sorry. Vegas is another thing I do know about. So <laughs> apologies. Perfect. This is a, a double blind peer-reviewed study. I'm joking because I'm sure that's just a survey monkey survey. <laughs> um, this is about <laughs> the booziest college football fans in America by university. So uh, I have a list of 25 names here. This is a top 25 okay. uh, fan bases in terms of drinking <laughs> In the stadium, right? So the the out of the stadium stuff, that's a whole nother survey. That's for a later time, Diggles. But uh, you want to make any guesses at your top universities here? So I'm guessing the universities that have the most booze that's sold within their stadium. Is that? Yeah, basically it's uh, average drinks consumed per game by fan base. Okay. Now we got to talk about the economics of that too shortly. Ohio State didn't even make the list. Great guess. Would have been on one of my perfect. No, didn't even. Okay, make I'm going to go down south. I'm going to go to University of Alabama. So Alabama, number nine, 3.6 drinks per uh, attendee. Whoa, for that's average. A, that seems aggressive. Cost. <laughs> just wait. That's only number nine for average cost of uh, basically $25. Your Alabama fan rolls into the stadium. Spends 25 bucks on beers and gets three and a half. It's a pretty good value for your money there. I have two more guesses. ASU. Okay. Ooh, great guess. I also would have had ASU on my list. They're not here. And USC. All right. USC number six. Good work. Ooh, moving also, on Also, though, yeah, they say 3.6. So, you know, it's similar to Alabama. Okay. I'm so glad you mentioned USC because that is the highest cost per beverage on this chart. To get 3.6 drinks in uh, LA, you have to spend almost $33. Ooh, okay. All right. Yeah. What's number one? Uh, Give me top so, three. Top three are all Big Ten country. And uh, number one, I think they're trying to drink away uh, their fans, their team's performance <laughs> recently. <laughs> number one by a whole half a beer. So, like, basically the whole list from number two to Number 21 is all within one beer of each other. It's between three and four beers per game. Number one, Nebraska, four and a half beers per game. Wow. Half beer greater than anyone else. It explains a lot. (laughs) Number two is Minnesota, four beers a game. Uh, I mean, it's cold up there, so I think they're just trying to stay warm. And number three is Wisconsin. So the Big Ten really dominating this. Mm. Uh, Wisconsin, you get... Almost four beers for twenty three bucks. Like that's that's a deal. They're they're having happy hour at the stadium. I'm, I guess. I'm gonna see you flying up there now to buy your beer. Like this is <laughs> this is gonna be a with your, your value yeah. investing beer <laughs> methodology. Yeah, it, 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 it's worth it. It'll pay for my flight. Um, LSU representing the SEC comes in at number four. Uh, LSU also has expensive beers. Um, let's see. Should we go conference by conference here? Uh, Looks like top representation of the Big 12 is Kansas. Now, this is hilarious because no one goes to Kansas basketball game or Kansas football games. But apparently, if you go, the, again, the product's so bad that you have to put a few <laughs> back. 
ACC highest representation is North Carolina State, three point six beers. They're they're number eight, and then uh, yeah, Pac twelve USC is number six. So really fun times. Some of the other names on the list, you know, middle of the road. Penn State makes an appearance. Duke makes an appearance. Also a poor uh, football team there generally. California, Kansas State, Arizona, Oregon. Pretty good stuff. I find this stuff fascinating. Should have thought of Penn State. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I know you do. <laughs> and moving on. <laughs> what else you got in the fishbowl? Can we can we just touch on Craig Wright? I feel like it's important for the listeners to know. We mentioned this uh, a while back that there was a trial going on in Florida where what's the best way to describe this? A business associate of Craig Wright's family, this individual had passed away, had claimed that they founded, created Bitcoin together. And so the founders of Bitcoin have a million Bitcoin set aside, which is the equivalent value of something like, at the time we talked, it was $60 billion. I think with the uh, pullback, it's more like 50 or $48 billion uh, now. But the trial promised to actually give a U.S. court's opinion of the true founder of Bitcoin. And it came back and said, this individual named Craig Wright is Satoshi. Like, incredible. Well, hold hold on. I, th- I think you're... <laughs> okay. Correct I think me. you might be overreading there. My, my read of this was what they said. They never, they did not say who the founder of Bitcoin was. What they said was that, um, I can't remember the the claimed business associate's name, but they were saying that that person did not found Bitcoin with Craig Wright. I think, I think is what they came back and said with no claim as to whether or not Craig Wright did it. Uh, Okay. I think that's, I think that's, if you put on your lawyer hat, that's probably fair. Because Craig Wright ended up having to pay, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he ended up having to pay the family, but it was because of other business dealings. And so the court kind of came back and said, we don't see evidence that they created Bitcoin together. We do see evidence that they work together on this other stuff. And so he ended up having to pay what is like a pittance compared to half of 48 or 50 or 60 yeah, billion. So he paid a hundred, a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Um, and he rather called it a win. Than 30 billion or whatever. But to the point, yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a very fair nuance. I will tell you places like coingeek.com uh, have headlines like, Bitcoin creator Craig Wright, 100% Satoshi, says the uh, juror in the Climate Wright case. So, yeah. I mean, there's some, I appreciate your nuance there because there's some misleading yeah. um, headlines out there. I do go and get my hard hitting journalism from coingeek.com. <laughs> well, I just, hey, in the crypto space, it gets pretty <laughs> sketchy pretty quickly out there. <laughs> Don't have all the major players. Um, it, it's good to close that out. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the nuance you're providing. I think that's it for me. You got anything else this week? I have one one last thing that is not investment related, but is just a you know dip into the fishbowl just for a little piece of news as to who you should not be. And this makes me think about episode well months and months ago that you brought up the like uh, the don't be a jerk philosophy that the Yankee candle. I think yeah had. yeah. So. What do you do when it's the CEO that's the jerk is the question basically here. So there's a there's a company called Better, better.com. It's a, a lending company, mortgage lending company. And 
the CEO, go and find this video online and watch it if you have not. The CEO laid off 15% of the staff, about 900 people, did so over Zoom. And it's the, the way in which he does it was so heartless. He comes on and he says, I've had to do this before. And the last time I did this, I cried. I'm going to be stronger this time. It's like, what robot are you and how? And then and then the way that he actually made it happen was he was like, we're going to have to let go of 15 percent of our workforce for financial reasons and for performance reasons. And if you on this, that's you like that's basically what <laughs> that, that was. That last part was not verbatim. That was just me. Um, but it's like so like, Google it, Google it, watch the video and then. Uh, the two goals you should have in your life are one, keep your daughter off the stripper pole and two, don't be the CEO. You have me laughing over here. Yeah, the, I have not seen the video, but some of those quotes were uh, widely written about and the whole like, it's about me. Like I've had to do this before and I cried last time. It's not about you, dude. And that you're you're no. unfortunately impacting everyone else you're like you're the one that's still the ceo of the company that still has the job it's not the time to think about you and the the zoom thing totally sucks i know we're in a world where that uh, unfortunately is forced upon us but that's also not ideal um i've never heard of like it, it that's the equivalent of like calling people into a big conference room and being like hey if you're the one of the 500 that managed to get a seat here in this uh game of musical chairs you lost your job today congratulations exactly i mean it's, it's just it's people's lives like you just yeah. can't be flippant with it so don't be that person all right well uh there's lots of media content out there from us hit us on twitter at skippy doogles skippy and doogles at substack.com reviews on itunes really help more people find the show we always appreciate those listener mail is skippy at doogles skippy doogles at gmail.com excuse me and uh we might have exciting news for you guys coming up shortly with more ways to connect uh to the Love show it. thanks for listening